The book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12 through 21, if you're using a pew Bible, that is page 621 in the Bibles that are in the pews. Paul the Apostle, of course, is doing the writing on this, and uh, he's naturally, uh, he is led by the Holy Spirit. I say naturally, supernaturally, led by the Holy Spirit in his writing. So it's not just his writings. It's not just writings of a man. This is writing of someone who is led by the Holy Spirit, according to 2 Peter chapter 1. And uh, he is writing, so God is speaking to you. He's speaking to me through these words. And this is what Paul says. He's giving a biographical uh, account of his own life. He says, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. I'm at verse 17. <clears throat> Brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who sets their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And as we often say, God will bless the reading of his word and obedience to it. Uh, he tells us that it will go forth and uh, it will accomplish that which he pleases. It won't come back void. He will accomplish what he wants to accomplish in each person's life. <clears throat> I remember years ago picking up a book by uh, the great golfer Jack Nicklaus. And uh, Jack Nicklaus was already well-known. He was already a champion. He'd already had gotten many awards and, of course, won many tournaments as a golfer. And uh, the opening lines of this uh, interesting book on teaching you how to improve your golf game, he said, after many years of being a golfer, I wanted to improve. I realized there was much more I could do in my golfing game, that I could improve it. And I said to myself, here's a guy who won the Masters Tournament, won all these tournaments, and yet he was saying there's room for improvement. That was unbelievable. I couldn't understand why he would say such a thing, but he was explaining that. And he went on in that book to say that he had gotten into a little bit of a rut. And he'd got into uh, picking up some bad habits that he might not have had when he was early on as a, as a young golfer. And in the same way, for the Christian, that's how it is as well. We can be moving along very nicely in the Christian life. We may start out with a great bang in terms of our living our life for Christ, very passionate in preaching the gospel, desirous to read the word of God, desirous to know Christ and to do great things for him. But somewhere along the line, we might just kind of settle on our lees. We might just take it easy, become complacent. And Paul wasn't that way. And in this portion right here, we have what we might call the aspiration of the Apostle Paul. He's explaining to the Philippians his desire to grow in the things of Christ and never let up. You know, we use that phrase, settle on your lees, and 
Some may not be familiar with that terminology, but that's even found in the Old Testament scriptures. And the idea that behind settling on our lees is this, when, a, uh, when, when some fluid like a wine or something like that, when it just sits there and settles, uh, any of the dregs or any of the sediment drifts down and lands on the bottom. That's called the dregs or the sediment, whatever you want to call it, the lees. And when something is settled on a lees, it means it's undisturbed. It's not moving at all. And it just sits there and those things drop to the bottom. And it's easy for the Christian, for you and for me, just to become complacent in the course of time. And just to not let the Lord really work mightily and powerfully in our lives. And we just kind of be complacent. And that's why the scripture speaks about not settling on our leaves. And so here the Apostle Paul is giving some very powerful ministry for you and for me. And speaking of himself that he hadn't already attained. And that's what he says here in these opening verses. And in verses 12 through 14 is the aim of the Apostle Paul. And he says it very clearly. He says in verse 12, not that I've already attained. Now here's great, the great Apostle Paul saying he had already attained. Yet God had given him tremendous revelation. So many revelations, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God had to give him a thorn in the flesh. Now, some of us are familiar with that terminology, thorn in the flesh, and what does it mean? Well, it comes from the life of the Apostle Paul, and he said, to keep me humble because of the abundance of revelation that I received from the Lord. He could have been very proud and said, you folks don't know anything. I know everything. God has spoken to me. But to keep him humble and keep him in his place, God gave him a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. It might have been the haunting memory of what he had done to Christians, dragging them into prison, some having them executed. That's what happened when he was on the road to Damascus. He was there to go to Syria, Damascus, Syria, to capture Christians and bring them back to the high priest in Jerusalem. And maybe that memory of what he did haunted him. Because a number of different times in the New Testament, he gives his testimony four different times. And he says, I was the chief of sinners. Then he says, I was the least of the saints. Then he says, I was the least less than least of the apostles. He just kept going downhill all the time. It seemed like almost he couldn't forgive himself. He did. He understood forgiveness in Christ. But you see, the apostle Paul had that memory that probably haunted him. Maybe that was a thorn in the flesh. Maybe it was his eyesight, because at his conversion, it says there were scales that went over his eyes and he couldn't see for three days. And a number of different times when he wrote, he talked about how writing a large, large letters not because they were long letters, large like long volume of writing, but rather large letters like a little kid would write because he had bad eyesight. Maybe that's the reason that he had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. But we know this, that here in verse 12, he's saying very clearly, not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. And that's the challenge that God gives you. That's a challenge he gives me, that we understand what is God's great purpose in my life in saving me. The King, Version, King James Version says it very clearly. It says that I may apprehend why Christ apprehended me. Now, apprehend can be used in two, word, two ways. You can apprehend by understanding. The word apprehend means you apprehend a concept. Hopefully, I'm getting the point across to you, and you're apprehending this. You're understanding this. That's one use of the word apprehend. The other use of the word apprehend is when you grab a hold of somebody, like a policeman would apprehend somebody. 
They would put their hands physically on somebody and detain them. That's apprehension as well. And so Paul is saying that I want to understand why Christ apprehended me. I want to apprehend why I was apprehended. And that's the challenge that God has for you. Why are you here this morning? You could be anywhere else. Why are you here this morning? Are you here because you just want to see friends? Are you here to hear the music? Are you here just to spend time? Are you here because you have nothing else to do? Why are you here is the question. And it should be like the Apostle Paul to learn of the things of Christ. The previous meeting, the worship meeting, is to go for the heart. That's worship. We sung those songs. Uh, I'm turning back to the heart of you, the heart of worship. The priority for the believer is the worship because that's where the heart is affected. But then comes the ministry meeting where the thinking and the understanding come for the word of God, the guidance and direction. Fruitless to have the understanding if you don't have the heart and the passion. Fruitless to have the passion but not know where you're going. You need both. You need the worship. You need the, the way to, to go and the guidance and direction. That comes from the word of God. And Paul wanted to understand, to apprehend why Christ had laid hold of him and changed the direction of his life. And for me, it was many years ago now. Maybe the same for a lot of you here in this room, this auditorium. But God has a purpose for you. We looked at a portion in Joshua, or rather Zechariah chapter 3 in the case of Joshua the high priest uh, in the previous meeting. And uh, there God reminded that Joshua was like a brand plucked from the fire for a purpose. And God has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for me. He gives not his grace in vain, it says. And the gifts and calling of God in Romans chapter 11, it says, are irrevocable. That he doesn't take them away. He's got a purpose in mind for us. It's not just filling time. He's given people, Christians, Christians, spiritual gifts to utilize those spiritual gifts for his honor and for his glory. So what is your ministry? Where is it? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 4 through 6 tells us that he gives diversities of gifts, differences of gifts. Everyone has spiritual gift. That's a believer in Christ. Supernatural abilities and talents that you did not have before you were a Christian. He gives us diversities of gifts. But then he gives us diversities of operations. That means power and enablement to use that gift in certain areas and venues. Differences of administrations, different spheres of ministry. Everybody has an area of ministry to exercise those spiritual gifts to the ability that God has given. And so Paul is saying it clearly here in verse 13. 12 and 13, he says, I want to understand and lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to apprehended at this point, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the mark of the prize of a high calling, of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So why does he use the word press? That's the beginning of the word pressure. And that means that for the Christian, there is pressure from the world around us to go its direction. And Paul understood that. And he said, I need to press against those influences. 
You walk outside these doors in a half an hour or whatever, and you go home, you will be bombarded by the world and its message. Look at me. That's what Facebook seems to all be all about, most in my mind. And the billboards, do this and really enjoy life. Do that and enjoy life. And the commercials and the movies and the television programs. So Paul said in Romans chapter 12, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold and pressure you into its mold. You have to press against that. And that's what Paul in essence is saying right here. And so he says, I press toward the goal. What's the goal? It's the prize. He's got his eyes on the prize ahead of him. For the upward call, the holy calling of God in Christ Jesus. Some will look at that verse, verse 14, and equate it with the fact that we get to heaven. It's the upward call when we get called to glory, get called to be with the Lord. I really don't think that's what it is. It could be interpreted that way. What it is, I believe, is the here and now, the holy calling of the Christian live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. To do things with excellence. He said to the Philippians, just turn with me for a second, Philippians chapter 1, look at what it says in verse 9 for context, just to turn over a page or so in your Bible. Uh, it says in chapter 1, verse 8, for God is my witness, Paul is saying to them. He's, by the way, he's writing from prison. Keep that in mind. This is a prison epistle. Amongst other letters in the New Testament, this is one of them, a prison epistle. He's writing in prison. And he says, God is my witness how greatly I long for you with the affection of Christ. He loved these believers in the Lord. He had helped establish that local assembly. And he says, this I pray. And he's looking at the group in his heart and mind. And he says that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all judgment or discernment. And verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. Someone has said the enemy of the, uh, of the great things are the good things. We can be satisfied with just the good things. Paul is saying to these believers, approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Are you approving the things that are excellent? Do you have a high standard for the things of Christ? Do you have a high standard for your own life? That's what Paul is saying. He says, I press toward the goal for the prize. There's a prize. There's a reward at the end. For the upward, the high and holy calling of the Christian to live a life that's pleasing to the Lord. And when you're living a life that's pleasing to the Lord, people around you will notice. You don't have to sit there and explain in some eloquent uh, conversation and defense of anything. They'll see the hope that lies within you. That's what Peter talks about in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, be ready with an answer to anyone who asks the reason of hope that lies within you. How do they know that? They'll see it. Psalm 34 says, they looked unto him and were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. When Moses came off the Mount, Mount Sinai after getting the Ten Commandments, he had been in the presence of God. And when he came off of that mountain, it says he didn't even realize, but his face was shining. And the people of Israel saw that. And he saw the glow of God upon his countenance. And when you're in the presence of the Lord, and when you're reading his word, 
and you're walking the narrow path of Christian discipleship and obedience to his word and in prayer, there's going to be a, a manner about you. There's going to be a glow about you that people are going to see and say, just like they did with Peter and John, that they took note when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this is Acts chapter 4, that they had been with Jesus. And when you spend time with Christ, people will see that difference. And your words then will take effect. They won't just drop to the ground. People will listen what you have to say. They'll see that because you've observed the high and holy calling. And so Paul's aim here, verses 12 through 14, were to be pleasing to the Lord, to be familiar with his word and get to know him. And that's what it really comes out of. It comes out of verse 10 of the same chapter, chapter 3, that I may know him. Now here he knew the Lord Jesus. He found him on the Damascus road, or the Lord found him, we might say. But this is some um, 25 years later. 25 years later, and the prayer, the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul is that he might know the Lord and the power of his resurrection. Do you know the power of his resurrection? Can you look back in a journal, let's say, and say, Lord, this is how you powerfully answered prayer in my life or someone else's life some time ago. It's good to have that little journal, that little prayer reminder that's what God did in my life. Someone was having problems with understanding the assurance of salvation. They thought they might not really have been saved. They might not have really trusted Christ, that maybe it was just something they had been talked into. Maybe it was just their own thinking that, you know, maybe they thought they were a Christian, but they're really not. So one time he said, follow me, devil, because the devil was giving him some doubts and worries about these things. He took them to the backside of the barn. He put the stake in the ground and says, this is where I trusted Christ as my Savior, and I'm never going to doubt it again. He put that stake in the ground and says, this is it. And he never had problems with doubts and worries again afterwards. Back in the 1940s, Billy Graham and Charlie Templeton were the two great preachers of the day, both of them mightily used of God to win people to Christ. But as the story goes, Charlie Templeton read some liberal literature and started going down a different path, and he ended up renouncing the faith. You can find out about this. We did it, went on the, one of our trips to the Creation Museum, and there was a whole display about this, Charlie Templeton having renounced his faith. But Billy Graham was the other great preacher of the day, just the young, budding Billy Graham, who was just a young man at the time. And he was rocked by the claims that Charlie Templeton and others had, and he started having doubts. And so he says, Lord, I can't continue this way if I have doubts. So on his own, before the Lord, he took his own Bible, went out into the woods, and there he put the Bible on a stump. And he says, Lord, your word tells me these truths are real. If they're not real, let, let, me be, let it be known to me right now. But if not, Lord, I'm going to stand upon the word. And from that point, it was a watershed experience in the life of Billy Graham. And from that point on, he had never doubted that this Bible that we hold in our hands or you have sitting on your laps is indeed the word of God. Powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing, it says, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, God's word can penetrate into people's lives and change them and transform them. And that's what happened to Saul of Tarsus when he later then became the Apostle Paul. He knew that. 
but he wasn't satisfied with it. He wasn't complacent. He said, I want to know you more and greater. And that's what he's talking about, and that's his aim. Now he says, now maybe there's some other people might disagree with me. And so in verses 15 through 16, he focuses then and gives an appeal to others that might not have thought that way. He says, therefore, let us as many as are mature, King James, you have, may say perfect, perfect but he didn't mean they, they were perfect, but that they were mature. Let them have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us have the same mind. And what is Paul saying when we step back from that? In a nutshell, it's this. However far you have progressed in the Christian life, don't slip back. It says, to the degree that we've already attained. Verse 16. Don't slip back. And some do. And they go back and back and back. It's called backsliding. And it's easy for the Christian to get their eyes off the prize and get uh, focused here and now. Lot in Genesis chapter 16. He was a believer, but he got so caught up in the things of the world, like we can, that he got involved there in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and got caught up in the political structure there. Maybe he was thinking he'd clean things up. And when it was all said and done, he lost his family, he lost his wife, he lost a lot of things. He was just saved by the skin of his teeth, we might say, before judgment came down upon that. I like the words of Bill McDonald, who said trying to clean up this world is like trying to rearrange the chairs on a Titanic. Doesn't do too much good. Better to save the message get the message out that people get saved than anything else and trying to fix things up. And so uh, the apostle here is reminding, challenging you and me, wherever you have been, the high water mark of your life, keep on going. Don't say I've reached it and then settle back. He says, to the degree that you've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. And so he's challenging you and, to, and me both to make sure that we're moving on to the things of Christ. And there's differences of opinion about this he says, God will reveal this. I always love that verse, verse 15. You're going to have differences of opinion in the Christian life. A lot of good, well-meaning Christians can differ on various things. Look at the Apostle Paul and uh, Barnabas. They, they had a sharp contention between them, didn't they? And yet they were both wonderful believers. The record follows the Apostle Paul. We don't see anything that much about Barnabas, but... He kind of disappears off the pages of Scripture, but later on we find out that he was instrumental in bringing John Mark back to the Lord. He had failed. John Mark had failed on the mission field. Barnabas was still working. God was still working in Barnabas' life. So there's differences of opinion between Christians. But God in the course of time will reveal even this to you, it says again at verse 15. And so there is the appeal that the Apostle Paul gives to these believers, an appeal based in the things of Christ. Someone said it this way years ago. Now, some of the younger people wouldn't know this. Some of you older folks would know this. There was a guy by the name of Norman Vincent Peale. Remember that name, Norman Vincent Peale? And he did not preach the gospel, but he preached from the Bible. But it wasn't the gospel. It was kind of a self-reformation type of message how different he was from the Apostle Paul, 
who said you trust the Lord for changing to take place in your life. So someone had came up with this nice little quip. And when you look at those two men, uh, the Apostle Paul and Norman Vincent Peale, he said this is why you find Peale so appalling and Paul so appealing. <laughs> because the Apostle Paul is saying, I can't do it in my own strength. I need God's help to live the Christian life. The Christian life is impossible to live. It is impossible to live in your own strength. But God can work through you and in you to bring him honor and to bring him glory. And that's what Paul is bringing out to these Philippine believers. And in this local assembly, it could be just an assembly like this. We often think, well, when he's writing this, he's writing probably to thousands of people. No, he's probably writing to a little group of believers who are meeting in the town of Philippi. As a matter of fact, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a little cluster of people living. The, the town itself, Philippi, was a little colony. And within that little colony of people were a little group of Christians. And he's reminding them, just like you're a colony in a foreign nation, Philippi, you're a part of the Roman government, but really you have a citizenship in heaven, which he talks about in the last verses. He says that's how you as Christians ought to be. Peter refers to it as a holy nation. They weren't a whole a nation, a complete nation of people. Everyone was believers. He's talking about the fact that you're a group and God looks at you as a separate group, not reckoning you amongst the nations, Numbers 22 says. Just a group of people who are walking at a different pace than the world around us, a different drumbeat, if you will, from the world around us. And so that's his appeal to these believers. Now, in verses 17 through 19, he talks about the pattern that he was himself and the pattern that is to be avoided of those who had walked away from the Lord. Now, let me just take you to a verse or two. Keep your finger right here. So I always love doing this in Bible study. We have a community Bible study, and I love just taking the group. We meet, uh, going on now for some 20 years, and we meet uh, in a uh, retirement community and uh, some 25 or 26 people uh, come together each, each Thursday afternoon for Bible study. And I love taking them from different, because a lot of them are new believers. And I love just taking them from verse to verse and showing these different things. Look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's an example of it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul cites himself here as a pattern in the book of Philippians chapter 3. But I'm looking now at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Just, it's not too far away. It's just a little further along from Philippians to Colossians to 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look what Paul said. He says, I thank, in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me. Paul never took credit for himself. He says, the Lord has enabled me. He says, because he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. He says, God has counted me faithful. I don't count anything for myself, he said, but the Lord count me faithful. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, means he was, he was uh, harsh and a brawler, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He says, I'm a chief of sinners. 
However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul said, God saved me as a pattern for people here in November 3rd, 2019, as a pattern to show what God can do in a person's life. How this man, Saul of Tarsus, a young upstart in Judaism, who exceeded his contemporaries, it says in Galatians 1, uh, people uh, looked up to this guy, this young person, Saul of Tarsus, and God, in the course of time, struck that man down on the road to Damascus and used him powerfully in ministry. And God says, God did it to establish the pattern of what God can do in a person's life. He wasn't boasting. He wasn't bragging. Then over in Philippians 3, as we were looking at it, he says, this is the pattern. You have me as a pattern. Follow me, Paul said, as I follow Christ. And so, verse 17 of chapter 3. Brethren, join in following my example. Note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. God says you're supposed to acknowledge those who should be credited for following the Lord. Mark those people. He says, because in verse 18, there are those who I have told you about many times. He warned them more than once. He said, keep your eyes on this person, on that person person on these people and that person on this teaching he said i told you over and over again don't forget that watch these people he was lining it up with scripture he didn't have anything against them as a person he had everything against them as uh, false teachers he says i tell you i've told you often but now i tell you even weeping that they're enemies of the cross and in my life as a christian i've seen some of those people who seemed to be fine in their Christian walk. They seemed to be nice people. They had a Bible. They came to church every week. Everything seemed okay. But somewhere along the line, they imbibed false teaching, false doctrine. And they didn't repudiate it. They didn't turn away from, uh, they turned away from the scriptures and they, they gave heed to these false doctrines. And in the course of time, it wreaked havoc in their lives. And Paul says, I tell you, even weeping, that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And he describes them there in verse 19, three different ways. And is there a destruction that God is their belly? They do it for their own selfish appetite. And their glory is in their shame. They do things that are shameful and shouldn't even be spoken about. And they set their mind on earthly things. They don't have a heavenly focus. If you've entertained certain doctrines, you make sure that you check that out with elders. You make sure you check it out with trusted individuals so you too don't get taken up in wrong teaching and uh, follow that pattern that Paul is talking about. First, he gives himself as the potter, positive pattern, and then he talks about those who are negative in their pattern. He says we should have a holy walk and a heavenly calling. And so in verses 20 through 21, he talks about the prospect. He talks about the appearing of Christ. He says our citizenship is in heaven, from which we're eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing I want to do is have this group dismissed. And you say, well, that was a nice message. 
good guy, let's go and watch the football game or something like that. I like football, I like baseball, I like the World Series, I like all those things. But when we come to this point and we open up the Word of God, it is preeminent, and we trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to people's hearts from the Word that is presented. And God here is saying to you and to me, our focus needs to be heavenward. He says, don't forget, you are registered in heaven, Hebrews chapter 12. And it says here, our citizenship is in heaven. And so everything that we do ought to be guided by the fact that we are just strangers and pilgrims just passing through. As a matter of fact, I remember being in this meeting here with a series that you had, uh, the elders had selected, say, the metaphors or the, the symbols of the Christian. And my message on that Sunday some 15 years ago was the Christian as a pilgrim. And a pilgrim is someone that's just passing through. They really are not part of that world. They're just passing through. And so in our country at Thanksgiving time, that's what we focus on, the pilgrims. What were they doing? They were just coming from, they were, tra they were, they were moving on, transporting from another country. And that's what the Christian is, a citizen of another world, heaven. And we're eagerly waiting for the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that might sound lofty, but we need to think about that. Maybe if it sounds so foreign to you, maybe it's because we've been listening to the teachings and the attitudes of this world. The focus for the Christian is to be looking for the Savior, eagerly waiting for him. When David was in his kingdom and Absalom was going to usurp that kingdom, David had a number of followers that went with him. And they followed him, it says there in 2 Samuel chapter 15, it says they followed him over the brook Kidron down to the valley. Now you come to the Holy Land, come to one of these trips, and you'll see that brook Kidron when we go there next year. That's a little plug, shameless plug for the trip to Israel. But you know, they knew that their king, David, would come back again to his kingdom. And if they were in allegiance to him, they knew that they would come back and be rewarded for their, obedient, for their obedience to him. And it's the same thing with Christ. Same thing for the Christian. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait. 2 Timothy 4 says that if we eagerly wait and we're looking for him, you're going to get a crown for that, the crown of righteousness. Finally, it says in verse 21, he will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. God is able to do all things, subdue all things. He's able to do everything. He's able to subdue all things. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. He's able to keep you from stumbling. He can keep you. Your salvation is not in jeopardy if you truly trusted Christ. He's able to help you. Hebrews chapter 2 says that. God is able to do these things. There's a group of people in the time of Christ. And they, the Lord said to these people, do you think I'm able to do that? And their answer in unison, yes, Lord, you are able. And here's my question for you this morning. Sitting here at Terra Road Bible Chapel, 
Do you think God is able to get you out of the doldrums, out of your self-complacency, out of your waywardness, out of anything that's keeping you from moving on? Can God change your heart? And the answer is he can. You just need to say, Lord, here I am. Work in my heart and my life. God is challenging you. He's challenging me to go further and not be complacent and uh, to not realize that we've already attained, but to press toward that mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And God has called you, and he is calling you, to do greater things for him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth in order to show himself strong on the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. And God is always calling us to a greater walk. Let's do that today and keep that in the forefront of our mind. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would indeed speak to our hearts through your word. Lord, Lord, long after my words are forgotten, we pray that the scriptures will speak to people's hearts and really identify what it is in their lives that need to be brought in line with your word. And so, Father, we trust these things. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your ongoing commitment in our heart and lives. And so we pray your help and your blessing in these things. We ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.